When we, we get to John, we're going to be in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The significance here, I find this to be one of the most, there's so many reasons for different fascinating passages throughout Scripture. I find this to be extremely fascinating because we see a real connection here between Jesus and his mother. And I haven't heard too many Mother's Day services um, regarding John chapter 2, but there's significance here regarding that. So let's read this and we'll talk about it. And once again, correspondence questions that we can all talk about, that'd be wonderful. John chapter, bless you. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. This is the first miracle that Jesus had. It's incredible because it involves a wedding. It involves an incredible doctrinal significance here in this passage. John the Beloved had written the gospel by the power of God so that we can know what Christ is about. And God sent his son as a man to us, and the word became flesh. We read this in John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is the gospel that really shows the deity and the heavenly position of our Lord. He is a Messiah. He's our Messiah. With, with this we see the beginning of the signs, miracles, that prove to us from eyewitnesses that Jesus was absolutely no ordinary man. He, in fact, is God. And you go towards the end of this passage in chapter 20, verse 31. These are written, another way of saying it is these words, this interpretation is written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. And this Gospel of John is written to prove the deity of Christ. When we, are, we, we, are, we see the love, we see the grace of our Lord, and what happens here is... The outline of the gospel according to John is basically when you see chapter 1 up to this point, John's verbal presentation of the Messiah. Then when you go to chapters 2 to 12, you see the public ministry of Jesus Christ. Chapters 13 to 17, the private ministry of Jesus with the disciples in the upper room in his consolatory discourse. And then we see the necessary satisfactory substitution for our sins is the death of Christ, the resurrection, and the post-resurrection. 
But I think what's significant about this event is it involves wine. And we have wine in communion. It's a non-alcoholic wine. And it's very important here what Jesus does here with this miracle. Noah, you have your hand up? Okay. This is called the marriage feast at Cana. I think the proximity of this feast is very important because it's only a few miles from the, the home of Jesus and Mary and where Joseph lived. This is his first miracle. There's no human way to explain the awesome works of Jesus Christ. He, of a truth, he must be God in the fact and in his miracles, the only way in this whole universe, the only way in our world and in our life, that something can be created from nothing is it cannot evolve. It has to be created from an intelligent design. And we're going to see here how Christ takes and makes something from nothing. Can I get someone to read John chapter 1 verse 3? And can someone else look up Revelation chapter 10 verse 6? He creates something from nothing and he makes wine. He can create something from nothing. John 1, 3, please. Awesome. Thank you, Lisa. Revelations 10, 6. Here, thank you, Noah. This is Jesus Christ as a creator. Do you want to know what I think when I hear the word creator? How many here, how many here like to make things? I know there's one in particular. How many people like to make things? Matthew, what do you like to make? That's good. That's right. Anyone else? Right. Isn't the, isn't the finished product of it wonderful? Isn't there, there's a, there's a positive reaction and a joy that goes into that. Go ahead, Lisey. Right. Amen. And it's so wonderful. Even the governor himself says he saved the good wine for last. Isn't that incredible? Anyone else? I can pick on some of you. I know Jim likes to create. <laughs> Jim likes to paint. Jim likes to cook. He likes to create. Lisa? Did you have your hand up? I'm sorry. Well, I know she likes to create. A lot of creation. I know Rachel, she likes to draw, so there's a lot of creation there. But that's ingrained in us because we were created to be creators. We create. We love to make things. We like to fix things. We like to work. It's the good one of thing about the one of the most wonderful things about the garden. I've been working as long as I can remember, and one of the things that was not condemned in the garden is work. Work had already started before the sin had ever entered into the world. 
and Adam was already working, naming the animals and naming the plants. He was giving them all their Latin names, I guess, and he was giving them all their titles. He was already working before the bite was taken out of the fruit. And so that's part of our creative ability. See, create, creating means to work. And here, Christ is absolutely, was never, ever anyone who was, who, who was not somehow connected to work. He never stopped working the whole time he was here. And here is his first incredible work. You know, the wisdom of the wise has tried to scientifically explain the miracles of the Bible, and they try to formulate logical reasoning. We cannot comprehend the power of our Savior because it's supernatural. Miracles are transcendent. They are supernatural. Can someone look up Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3? Before we get into the body of this here, a little, a little, uh, little closer. Amen. Thank you, Matthew. And we see here, he upholds all things by the word of his power, which means that he has the power to create from his very voice. That's how powerful and perfect that his voice is. We see here that this wedding feast is somewhat, you could call it a a present day party. Most important, it was carefully planned event for those in Cana, many surrounding cities, Third day after the meeting with Philip and Nathaniel, this wedding feast takes place one week after the presentation from John the Baptist to his disciples of the Messiah and meeting with his disciples. What was so vital about this is this was the coronation of Jesus' ministry here on this earth. Why didn't he wait until he was 30 years old? Anyone? It's very important. Christ could have been healing, he could have been preaching. It even said at the age of 12 years old, he was so brilliant that even all the rulers there listening to him in the temple, when he was left back at the temple, they marveled at his magnificence. But why didn't he have a public ministry? Teresa? You know, wisdom, there's a lot of wisdom there with age. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, by the time Christ was 30, actually by the time, from the time he was 30 to 33, um, historians and theologians said that, uh, that, that of, a, of a truth, he would have looked more like a 50 or a 60 year old man because of the grief and all of the, the stress on his humanity and his body. He's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. But at 30, that was, that was law. That was the Jewish law. Go ahead, Greg. Was it was that the Levitical priesthood was thirty? Yeah, that's exactly right. That he always followed the law. He did not abrogate it to to annihilate it, but all the way down the line, if you're studying scripture, even his coronation into the ministry where he would start healing, although he's perfect, he's deity, he did not start his public ministry until he was thirty years old. This event happens only one week after John the Baptist baptizes him. Remember John the Baptist said, I cannot baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And the Lord says, do it now. 
He says, "Go, you do it. And John had already said, Behold the Lamb of God, the, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. And he knew that, that Christ is the one that had the satisfactory substitutionary form of atonement. John was called many times the Messiah. Even Herod thought that's who he was. But he stepped down and he said, I must decrease, Christ must increase. One week later, here Christ is here. I find a lot of things that aren't said in here very fascinating. Number one, there's two people I find here that are not present at this wedding feast of Cana. Number one is John the Beloved. I mean, John the Baptist, not John the Beloved. John the Beloved's there. John the Baptist is not here. We read that he would not go to any kind of feasts or party. He was out, in, he was out doing the work out in Galilee. And he, I mean, the, the Judean wilderness, that's where he was. And then eventually Christ would take that over when John's brought in and he's incarcerated and then he's murdered. And so here I think I find that to be fascinating. But here after the meeting with Philip and Nathaniel, Christ says in verse 40, 41, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. He literally, <coughs> he literally says that right there after his baptism and he goes right into this miracle. Cana was a very little, it was a very small town, probably no more at the time than a hundred residents. Nazareth may have been about 500 at the time. Cana is a very small, humble town, and though there were differences among the people in the neighboring towns, a wedding was a massive event, and many for the surrounding towns would get together for this event. It was a big thing. Weddings lasted for a week. Not a day. Can you imagine a wedding lasting for a week? They're hard enough when they're a day, you know, with all the preparation and the money. And there's a really incredible caveat to these Jewish weddings back in the days of Jesus is quite different than today. We'll talk about that. This first miracle of Jesus is extraordinary in that it's performed at a wedding. Remember the wedding feast of the Lamb. Remember how Christ is the groom and, the, and we are the bride of the church. Weddings carry very, very great significance. And what is so sad about the decline of marriage today is what it does to upend and it does to, to not always very well obey the dominion mandate given in marriage. And I think that the wedding, the fact that Christ starts his ministry at a wedding here with this miracle is very significant. It's highly significant. It's, it's a direct manifestation of the serious nature of the wedding covenant, the, the, the marriage vow. Jesus performed his first miracle at a wedding. This was not an arbitrary choice for Jesus to pick this event to unveil his first sign. He didn't go back to the disciples and his family and they sit there and spin a wheel and say, all right, I'm now out here. I've now been ordained. And now why don't we just, you know, uh, cast lots and see where I'm going to start doing all of my big events. No, this was, this was a providential working of the Lord where this was going to start right outside of Nazareth. It's only 10 miles away. Not that far. And so... Who would have been there? It was a good chance, I believe, that you, know, you read enough commentary, if you read this long enough, there's a good chance that it was actually Mary's family was there. She was probably part of that wedding, and she was probably working very hard there. Public covenants matter. Marriage is very important. It's quite obvious that this is a foreordained miracle for our learning, and here it is a wedding. Jesus' presence 
and the works of this marriage is not just a matter of historical record. Jesus is still teaching us that marriage today is a covenant of God between a man and a woman. It's, it's great preparation and it's open public accountability. It's a very important part of the marriage institution and Christ is here and he's showing that here. That's how important marriage is. Public covenants matter. The question is, is marriage in and of itself a component of salvation? It's a covenant, but it's not a sacrament. That's very important. It's taught today that marriage, there are actually churches that have literal weddings as a substitution for the Sunday morning Sabbath worship service. That is wrong. And that's not something that we should that's something that we should ever embrace or encourage. I mean, we may catch ourselves maybe a Sunday afternoon having to go to a shower or a wedding. I understand that. I mean, that's not for me to say. But to, but to have a substitute wedding in, in place of, of, of the worship service, where does that come from? Who does that mainly today? Anyone know? Exactly. And my contention is they might as well have a wedding <laughs> instead of having a Sabbath morning worship service. Doesn't make it right, but that's, that, that is one, marriage is one of the seven sacraments. That is not how Christ ordained it. That's the wedding is a covenant. It's a bond and it's an, it's an accord. And that's, and that's what's happening here. Marriage is a common grace open for the saved and the unsaved. You, you think about that. It, it's, 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 a very high and one of the greatest and the highest of all relationship. It's a grace of life that the Lord gives us. He intended it for Adam and Eve and to be helpmates exclusively. God never intended to bring divorce. He never intended same-sex marriage. And He never intended for one person to be married to one man to be married to more uh, partners or, or wives at a time, the polygamists. There are provisions for divorce. They are there. Moses gave them, but Christ said, but I tell you that it was not so at the beginning. And so when you go all the way back to the garden, we see that this, this accord is extremely important. We see here that in Genesis, I think, you know, when you talk, when we talk about some of the Hebraisms, when they're the, some of the some of the names that we've been seeing and some of the um, um, the applications that are given twice and how important that is. I also find it incredibly important, especially when you combine the New Testament with the Old Testament. When you see a Bible verse written the exact same way more than twice, that takes it to a superlative degree, and it shows the importance of marriage. In Genesis two twenty four, Matthew nineteen five. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 6, these are all the same verses that give the dominion mandate, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. That verse annihilates the LGBTQ. Heavenly. It annihilates homosexuality or any parts of it. Makes me sick to my stomach when you drive up the Target, up the Bel Air, and you look through the door, they've got the rainbow circle right where you can see that sitting in the parking lot. And that rainbow circle, they have two forms of it now. One for the LGBTQ and one for now the budding 
child to transitioning children. That's what it is standing for, and it's now a flag flying outside of the White House for transitioning children. What could be more vile than that and disgusting? Yeah, we're going right into June 1st. Where do you see it? Where do you see how they, they're just starting all the decorations there. This is now becoming the standard in America. Is it any wonder? And when you go to this wedding feast of Cana, this, 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 this dominion mandate given and how it is treated, it shows us that that is all completely against anything that the Lord would ever allow. Not one component of it. There's not one enabling of it. The only connection that we have to that whole genre is to bring those people to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to pity what's going to happen with them defying this dominion mandate. Therefore shall a man leave his mother and father, his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. It's Adam and Eve. Never Adam and Steve. Purity, protection, purposing to stay away from temptation. These are, these are all extremely, uh, extremely important parts of marriage. Companionship. These are just some of the applications that are intended for us. But it was sadly man that perverted and distorted this covenant. The significance of this miracle is it's at a wedding. And the fact that it was at a wedding teaches us how important the marriage covenant is and the vows are. We see that Jesus is there to attend the wedding with five disciples. And we've been, we, we see this. And the beautiful truth about this wedding is that Jesus has thus far lived 30 years in obscurity. And around this area in Nazareth, not far away, he's baptized. He's tempted in the wilderness and now ready to embark into his public ministry. So how does he begin his public ministry? We go to the wedding. Jesus' mother is there. Sadly, here's the second one that's not there. We see John the Baptist is not there, and there's another that's not there, and it's very sad. We don't read of any historical, and I mean Eusebius, Philo, Josephus. We don't read of the presence of Joseph. By this time, Joseph probably hasn't even made it to 50 years old and he's dead. And now Mary's there by herself. We have to remember that without the... Lisi, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yes, right. That's important. And the fact that the, the two, those two little towns are so close together... You can bet people knew each other. One of the things that I did read, and I went back and looked at the history of what it was commonplace for parents, especially women in Nazareth, what they did, they would go down to Jerusalem near the temple. They would take their children, and whatever children they'd have, they would set up. You know how it says in Proverbs 31 how women, they have their tapestries, and they have their things that they actually they can sell, and they embroider, and they do things. It was a very good chance. I, I can't confirm this perfectly. I mean, you'd have to literally be there. But it, one of the traditions was they would take the children into the town and they would set up like a stand and they would sell some of their clothing. They would make the clothing and they would sell food and they would have stands like we do today. And there's a good chance that Jesus did that with her before she, he became 30. Which means that if that happened, and it was traditional, there were two ways that that would happen. During the normative part of a week or sometimes during festivals, it would happen at the temple and people would get together there. Everybody would get there for Passover and they would all know each other. So you, Cana, there's no doubt there was a lot of family and a lot of people that were very close together. 
And Mary was there. It's obvious that following, you know, right on what Lisi said, which is perfect, is there. She was working and she was directing. And that is that that's part of the heart of the message this morning. What a Mother's Day gift to see Mary doing this and working. And what, what kind of person was she there with her son? And she's honoring her son, not just as her little boy, but as her savior. That's incredible. Teresa. It does, doesn't it? And then, as you think about it and everything, it's like, well, this was his first miracle. Right. She, he, she knew he could do it, and he did it, but it just seems disrespectful. It seems sarcastic, it seems disrespectful, and it seems irrelevant to the type of reverence that his mother, that, that she deserved. But it's not that way at all. If you go back to when Christ said in Luke chapter 2, Wished ye not that I am about my father's business? That's a direct connection to what he's saying here. He's basically on one hand, you have his, we're going to get into that, and that's a great point. His deity and his humanity. And when they cross over, he's telling Mary, Remember, my job is of the Father. And I am your Savior. And she, what, what's very important about that is all of these little components prove of a fact, infallibly it proves, she was not deity. Which we know that there's a real big problem, especially in the state of Maryland, being predominantly Catholic. You're going to have a hard time describing and trying to get through that when you witness to a Roman Catholic. Mary's picture, if you go into people's houses, you will notice most of the time, now I can't say I've seen this 100% just because of memory, but most of the time, Mary's Mary's, whether it's a statue, whether it's a picture, some kind of representation, her head is always above Jesus' head. You'll notice that. She's always over Jesus. As if to say that she is the deity over Jesus and he is subservient to her. When she herself cried out that she needed a savior and that she pondered all these things in her heart. This was a very... Incredible type of wedding back in the day. There was no doubt that the generations of Mary lived near Cana. Is that why she was present? Did she play a role in the wedding? Consider the female workers in the church. Events, even in this church itself, we've down through the years, I've seen many churches and it's amazing. The catalysts and the foundational workers are usually the females. They're the ones that get in the trenches and they get the work done. They get the meals, they greet, they do all these wonderful things, and it's no different today. And that's the core of them. They're almost always on hand to serve, and this is Mary. Mary may have been there because her family and son was there, and we know for sure that she was concerned about the progress of the wedding. As we see that the wine runs out, Mary offers up this imperative that whatsoever Jesus says to do, do it. Isn't it amazing it wasn't the other way around? Jesus telling everyone, saying, whatever my mother says, you do what she says. Mom, mom, mother knows best, you do what she says. No, she says, you do what my son and my savior, whatever he says, you do it. He knows what to do. She's all, she already knows this. 
she already knows that there's an incredible presence in her son and she knows exactly what it is. She also knows going into this that he's not far away from what Simeon told her that a sword would pierce through her when her son is crucified on the cross. And she's carrying all of this knowing that he's not going to have a very long life. She doesn't know the exact time, but she knows Christ had said many times about his hour coming. The wine ran out. Now here's the difference between the the big weddings. Who pays for the wedding now? You have a a wedding, who pays for it? Yes. Well, I like what the Bible does, because I think it's a very good litmus test on what kind of guy your daughter's going to marry. The groom had to pay for the wedding, and he better have enough money to do it. And if he didn't, there was actually punishment. He, if he could not provide all the substance for that week, not only could he not marry the woman, he could get in big trouble. He, he could actually, the governor could actually lock him up. That's how serious this was. I tell you what, you want to find out how, if a guy is, if he's, if he's got enough integrity to marry a daughter, that's a good way to do it. I wonder how that would go over these days. When did they actually marry? That I don't know what day it was. I, I believe it was early on because they would have the feast. The feast, I believe it was early on because the feast would last through the week. That's why it lasts so long. So you'd have the wedding first and then you would be you know, honoring it by that. BC. Yes. Right. Right. So there were six of these water pots that were filled up to the brim. I figured it's about 125 gallons mm. of wine. Right. And I thought, well, that's a lot. That brings up an incredible point also because could you drink the water? Maybe again to Mexico, don't drink the water. No, no, you could not drink the water over there. You would die. It would be really bad or you'd have such a stomach ache you'd wish you were dead. So in order to be able to have any type of drink or any kind of beverage, they had to, they had to go through a process. You all know that. We've talked about it many times. That's a good point, but once again, let's go back to this. In verses 9 to 10, the wine ran out. And it was the groom's responsibility, we see in verses 9 to 10. Today, customarily, it's the bride's family that funds the wedding. Hebrew weddings tradition was for the groom to bear the financial responsibility. And first, the wedding could last all week. Much preparation was put into this massive event. Betrothal period? One year, this would give the groom time to prepare his house, build his home, work hard. You had a one-year betrothal period. That was a minimum. You didn't just wind up getting, uh, you know, get, get, get all hyper and all sensitive and all real just ushy-gushy and then <laughs> propose to a woman and marry her the next week because you couldn't wait. There was a one-year betrothal period and the families evaluated both the, the bride and the groom, but mainly the groom, and that gave him a year to prepare for this. 
So if he had a year to prepare for this and he blew it and he wasn't ready, he was in big trouble. And so, once again, our superhero, Jesus, he steps in, always fixing things. I can't stand to hear people talk negative about Jesus Christ. I hate it. When people take his name in vain, I hate it. I can't stand it because he's never done anything to offend anybody, to do anything bad. It's just that alone. Nothing. And that just is on the first level of how much I hate that. But, the, but this betrothal period, one year this would give groom time to prepare his house, build a home, work hard. What a way for a young man to show the family he was fit to marry their daughter. The wedding could have proved to be catastrophic for the groom. There was not enough wine. In all actuality, the groom could have been in major trouble with the bride's family. Isn't this what fathers fear? That the father that has a daughter and she, met, she, she meets a young man, doesn't he lose a lot of sleep over whether that young man can take care of her today? There could have been even a, a lawsuit from the, the relatives of the bride. Back in the day, that could have been very serious. Many, many see this. They see this as, this is a serious nature of the wine running out. This could have been in the very first part of the wedding, in the first few days. They could see that there wasn't going to be enough. There would be, they would have nothing to drink. So why was wine necessary? Grapes and different fruits were used. Wine was subject to a fermentation process. By John MacArthur's studies, and I went specifically from this because most people that, you know, there's a handful of people that can't stand him, and I think they're crazy. But, um, but most people love his work, and I think that the, the, the John MacArthur Study Bible is extremely important. And when I, I've listened to him preach, and, I, and I've read his work in the, in, in the, the, in the Study Bible, Wine was subject to fermentation, it says, and it was diluted by either a 3 to 1 or a 10 to 1 mix, with the greater number being that of water, given 1 to 3rd to 1 tenth of its strength. Drunkenness was condemned, especially in, in Israel. And if you, you altered that fraction and you fermented it instead of a 1 to 3 to like a 1 to 10 to 1 to 3, then you get fermented wine that you could get drunk off of. And Jesus did not do that. There is no record, there's no historical writing from any scribe saying that anybody got drunk at that wedding. If it had, that would make Christ a liar and a sinner. Because his very words say here, we see Proverbs 20 verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. So, I don't think that it's unusual to consider that that is our way of learning from Christ, that drinking alcohol is wrong. It is a sin. Wine is a monker. Strong drink is an abomination. And this is not some kind of a recommendation. People drank the wine because it was safe to drink, and so they were very careful to mix it properly. But when Jesus mixes it, he doesn't have to get out a KitchenAid blender and have all these things and have people waiting for days to make it. He speaks the word, and there it is. Perfect. The most perfect-tasting, non-alcoholic, non-inebriated drink that there could be. And that's what it is. How many times I've talked to people, even in my own family, extended family and all, 
Oh, well, Jesus had wine at the wedding feast of Cana. That's why it's okay to have my so many beers a year. I don't agree with that. And if you don't, I'm sorry, but I don't. I don't believe that you use Jesus and say that he does something evil so that we could do good from it. I don't believe that. Matthew. And it does. That's the result of it. And so here, that's a good point, Matt. And so we see here that there, Mary is concerned. People drank wine because it was safe to drink, and so they were very careful. And I know that there's no doubt that Jesus had this perfect. Everything he did is perfect. Not was. To this day, he still does perfect things, and he always will. Mary concerned, and she turns to Jesus. She turns to him. And when Mary had a problem at home, who do you think she consulted? Jesus never had a wrong idea in his life. And he always had the perfect answer for every predicament. The most wise, intelligent, resourceful in his humanity and his deity that ever was on the face of this earth. When we have a hard time solving problems, isn't it no wonder that Jesus always says to get into your prayer closet and talk to me. And the word that we use is pray. But he says, talk to me. He doesn't say, talk to somebody else and have them offer up their prayers to me on your behalf. He says, you talk to me. Can you imagine all the messes <laughs> that everybody had around when Jesus was growing up and they would go to him and say, well, what do you think? And he always had the perfect answer. He always had the perfect response. And it was always reassuring, encouraging. And it would always level out the problem and it would always bring it to a head. He, he called a woman, just, in John, just, just as in John 19. She says, she says, they have no wine. And she has learned to trust his wisdom. The Catholic Church has, says that Jesus goes to Mary for problems. That we go to Mary for problems. But it says here, Mary went to Jesus for problems. She always did. Did Jesus rebuke her here? Was this a, was this a, going off of what Teresa said, was this a rebuke? He calls her woman, just as in John 19 on the cross. She's, she's no longer in a position to have authority in his life as his mission is to obey the Father all the way to the cross. Think of the mindset there in his humanity. You would, if you were told, and this would be for us, I don't believe that we physically and mentally could ever handle this. But if you were basically told that of a truth, no doubt in three years that you were going to die, and it was going, and you would know every last component of the way you were going to die, considering you would be scourged, you'd be flogged, you would be spat upon, and then you would be crucified, every last second would count exponentially. We always think we have plenty of time. You know, we, we're here the chief of procrastinators. Jesus had no time to waste. And every minute counted. And I believe that's one of the components of why he spoke to his mother that way. And I don't believe it was disrespectful. I believe it was of a very serious reverence to say, remember what my mission is here. The Father has me do this and this and this and this. And I believe he told her. I really believe they had an excellent conversation. But just remember, wish ye not that I am about my Father's business. I must be about my Father's business. In other words, I must obey my Heavenly Father ultimately and carry on the mission of redemption. 
Jesus had subordinated all activities to the fulfillment of that mission of redemption. We see in, in his, his, his reply in the verse, Woman, what do, what do I have to do with you? It, it's not a matter of impoliteness, but it's idiomatic from the Hebrew. What was he saying? What does your concern have to do with me? You do not understand what I'm doing. Who did? I mean, even those that watched him heal the miracles and, and all that he did, they even left him at the cross. They still didn't have that, that, that understanding until we see in John chapter 20, the Lord lifted that scale from their eyes and they could start seeing, they could start understanding where only Christ himself truly could process this. This is a separating statement. I am about my Father's business. This, this miracle, this makes the miracle all the more precious. Christ's mission involved doing miracles for others to see His perfect righteousness along the way. He answers us. Psalm 34.4 says, I sought the Lord and He heard me and delivered me from all my fears. And Jesus is doing what the Father wills now. He's, he's now distancing himself to this point to prepare for death. I think the wine here at the wedding feast, of, wedding feast of Cana is very significant. I think it's very significant of the outpouring. Look at all the wine that was there. Look at all the outpouring of the blood that he would have. I heard a message this morning, and I'm, you know, I didn't want to plagiarize it, but I do want to tell you what the content was. Why wasn't it not enough when Christ died that he scratched his like finger or scratched his arm and the blood flowed out and then that blood was enough of atonement and a substitutionary uh, answer for our sins or, or a substitutionary um, sacrifice for our sins? Why isn't that enough? Anybody? We need to know this. This is very important. Because remember, the sacrifice is without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Christ, it wasn't enough for him to just shed his blood. He had to die to produce life. That's a resurrection. That's a substitutionary, satisfactory atonement. And that came from R.C. Sproul said that. I was listening to him this morning a little bit. And I think that's so important. And what he was talking about is he was literally, he got into this, where he was really expounding and bringing out the efficacy of this, is he was literally in an argument with one of his professors when he first got into the ministry, and when he talked about the substitutionary, satisfactory components of the, of, of the atonement, the professor says, well, that was back in that day. Back in that day, what does that have to do with present times? When has that not had anything to do with present times? It's always the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that blood atonement is what Jesus Christ, He is getting prepared for here. So you can see the serious nature of this and why He doesn't have a smart aleck tone, why He's not being sarcastic and goofing around. How many times did you read Jesus ever, in this period of His life especially, joking around or laughing or scorning or making fun? He was as serious as death because He knew what was coming. I think that's a, I think that, does, does that explain that, Teresa? I hope? Does that make sense? Because I had the same question. I think that's a good question. Jesus is doing what the Father wills now, now distancing himself to prepare for death. Woman, quote unquote, Jesus calls her and shows now that she is dealing with the Son of God, the Son of Man. And this, obliter this obliterates Mary's function in the Roman Catholic Church. 
Jesus is God, not her. I truly believe, without a, without a doubt, if Mary were to somehow come alive today, and she were to hear and see the statues and see all of the representations of her presentation in all of these churches, it would make her sick, I believe. She knew she needed a Savior. She is not hand in hand with Christ as deity, but she's a sinner saved by grace. And Jesus separates Himself as He is perfect. A wonderful mother. A beautiful mother. What a lovely example of a mother. But I think the church, the mother church... <laughs> quote-unquote, takes it way too far. Christ had said, mine hour has not yet come. Mary obeys him. She bows out and she says, everyone listen to him. The water pots. Uh, go to Mark 7, 3 and 4. We could see how G the Jews would purify everything with the pots. And this was a custom. Six water pots were made of stone because stone was more impervious than earthenware and did not contract uncleanness. It was more suitable for ceremonial washing. So here we see everything put together. As we're almost done here already. Everything's put together here with the wedding feast. It's, it, it's significant this wedding is so important and how Christ he, he is, is so uh, shows how weddings are important and that, 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 that bond between a man and a woman is so important and how that accord that is made is not to be pierced and it's not to be broken till death do us part. We see that the wedding here is supposed to be paid for by the groom. He doesn't have enough. He doesn't have enough uh, uh, maybe money or substance in order to provide for the whole wedding feast for the week. And Christ steps in, says the word, and he makes it all better. And that's the efficacy. That's the beauty of the, of the miracles where they were never done in violence to hurt anyone. They were always done to help, to build, to create, and to prove every word that he said was of a, in, in as Acts I love in Acts chapter 1. And, and they are all backed up in certainty by infallible proofs and, and many, many witnesses. So Jesus had the servants fill the water pots and water, and he created. Can somebody look up Genesis 129, please? Genesis 129. He created the fruit and the vine, and just like the, this great antioxidant, mineral, and vitamin filled beverage you could find today, that could probably be very expensive, he speaks, and there it is. Who has Genesis 129? You know what's important about that? You've all, you've, you've, you've all probably been to a lot of natural stores, naturopaths and you know, health food stores. They're filled with herbs that have healing powers. It's amazing how many... You can actually take large amounts of oregano oil and they do act as an antibiotic. You can actually put them on an open wound and it helps to cleanse them. These herbs that God created are very much for our own benefit even today and He knew that we would need them. How do you get fruit? Seeds, sunlight, vines. You, you get grapes. You don't get grapes. You don't get seed. You don't get anything if there's no sunlight here on this earth. He created this from nothing at all. The servants give testimony that He created this from nothing. This is incredible. 
We see that the good wine is set forth here in the beginning. The best wine was not given until the middle of the end. And look at what the governor says. We see here, look, read verses 10 and 11. And, well, go back to verse 9. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, how could he know whence it was? It was created from nothing. But the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. And this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee. And even John the Beloved records that it of a truth was a miracle. It was supernatural. And you know what? At this point, the groom has to be saying, wow, boy, that he really bailed me out. How many times did Jesus bail us out? He does it every day. And so, you know, to finish this morning, I think this makes an incredible Mother's Day message and how Mary loves her son, how she tells everyone, you listen to him, and how she loves him as her son and her savior. That's a godly mother. Let's finish this morning with prayer. I'd like to ask maybe Jacob, could you close this? Thank you.